0: gospel reading for this morning is recorded in the book of Matthew chapter 9 verses 1 through 8. It's in Matthew chapter 9 verses 1 through 8. I'm reading from the NIV and it reads us. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man laying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blasphemy. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. Then the man got up, and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with out, and they praised God, who had given such authority to man. The end of the reading of the word.
1: good morning church good morning. and welcome to those joining online hello to you as well and those that will watch this later we're glad you're with us here today we are in a sermon series Woo-hoo. Yay! so it's a short one don't worry so yeah you know as we go but this is the second week if you missed the first one we're doing a sermon series uh based upon this idea which is much better when i just sing it to you instead of reading it to you so <clears throat> i want anna to oh well Maybe I'll just jump up and do a little bass, the the back of it or something. They're saying I should jump up and do the choir if I'm going to keep singing. So we'll see what happens there. But uh, one, and a two, and a three. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms, in the arms of my dear Savior. Oh, there are 10,000 charms. And so, of course, the sermon series is called 10,000 Charms that we're looking at just a couple, not 10,000, but maybe three of the different charms that are in Jesus Christ. And, of course, we're picking some big, you know, if you're going to list maybe the top three, these are going to be some of them that we're talking about. Last week, we talked about that very idea that one of the charms that Jesus offered us, one of the goodness of God, those things that are so precious, they deep, delve deep down into your soul is this very idea of rest, rest for your souls, and how no one or nothing in the world can bring that except Jesus Christ. Nothing even tries to promise that that I've ever come across, that if you buy this product, if you follow this way, if you do this thing, you'll find rest for your very souls. No, that's only something Jesus can do, and we looked upon that last week. Before we jump into this week, let's pray together. Lord, may the words of my mouth the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, if it were any possible that there was something sweeter than rest for your souls and rest for my soul, there's something yet even sweeter than that. And it's something that's last week, of course, was the big Super Bowl that uh, I know a lot of people are disappointed with the ending, but a lot of you probably watched the Super Bowl ads. I didn't get to watch it this year, I always liked the Super Bowl ads, but this year we had friends over and, you know, crazy kids going crazy and all that stuff, you don't hear, I missed the whole thing pretty much, I caught like the very end of the game is really what happened, but uh, as we were there hanging out, you know what, I'm pretty sure, even though I didn't see it, none of them, in that Super Bowl ads that is, promised what Jesus offers us here today, one of his 10,000 charms. And I speak none other than maybe the sweetest of all things, that your sins can be washed Now when we sit there and we talk about sin, it's not too popular to talk about very much in today's world, but it is interesting that the, the Bible's very clear on this and the point of all, you know, Christians and their walk with God, everybody's explained this and has affirmed this throughout their walk, is that all of us are sinners. In fact, I've really never met, we have a Christian, whether they were more conservative, progressive, whatever, I've never met anybody say, well, someone so is not a sinner, right, besides Jesus. Everybody agrees on that very fact that all of us are it seems so fundamental to our experience and our hearts, it seems like if we're really honest with ourselves and in those dark moments or those quiet moments when we're left thinking our thoughts, that we just innately realize that our hearts don't point true north. That even when we think we're on the right path, there's always something slightly off even. There's something inside us that's taken over. It's so interesting, of course, when you look at the history of human thought and You know, not so long ago, it was understood that humans are tabula rasa, right? The empty blank slate. And that when humans are born, they're just born without any inclinations or anything. And as they go through life, they choose their own paths or encounter different things. And of course, more modern times, that's been out the window, right? People don't believe really that at all. Uh, Modern times has said something else. And so, depending on who you're talking to or what scientist you're talking to or uh, psychologist you're talking to, the thing of the day is biological determinism. Right? And so one of the big debates going on in the world right now with all the different thoughts is, our DNA puts inside us certain affinities for things. And so the question also becomes, how much of those things are purely determined that we have no choice over, or is there also like an element of where you are in your you know, society, if you will, or your, your environment, if you will, does that have a play on it? And then finally, of course, just our own choices that we make and live with and what we choose that we like and we don't. And there's this big horse, of course, huge thing, uh, debate going on about that. And things that we used to think of differently are changing rapidly, right? Just take the idea of an addiction, right? Not so long ago, we looked at someone who was addicted and we thought, oh, this is, you know, more or less the choice that they made. They became addicted to a certain either substance or thing or person or whatever it was. And so therefore, they, you know, have some liability in that and as time goes on, we become more and more thinking that it's less and less the choice and more and more almost predetermined for you. And in fact, in all ways, we've really kind of believed this in somewhat. I remember my mom when I, uh, I grew up in a family that like, they only drank alcohol on like steak dinners and wine, you know, like that was it. Like, I can't ever remember my dad drinking a beer unless he, like some friends were over at the house or something like that. And I remember distinctly when I went off to college, I was 21 and I came home one night and. Had some friends over. We bought like a six pack of beer, right? I mean, we were going wild. You know what I'm saying? Like it was a six pack of beer, and we were literally just sitting on the porch, just chilling and chatting and all that stuff. And my parents, you know, uh, were, were kind of worried about me because, oh no, Jonathan, you know, is buying alcohol, bringing it to the house, all this type of stuff, which I thought was funny because they had my dad collected wine growing up because he had like a <laughs> wine whole rack thing, anyways. But I uh, always thought that was funny. But uh, you know, my mom, I distinctly remember her telling, pulling me aside afterwards, said, "Hey, look." I know this was nothing tonight, but just so you know, some of the stories we never told you, uh, you have some uncles and aunts and things like that that were alcoholics. And I went, wait, what? And I was like, she's like, yeah, so just so you know, like, and I remember her kind of saying it in these words, it runs in our blood. And I said, oh, okay, well that's something good to know that I wish I had known beforehand, right? But even then, she kind of understood this idea, and we always kind of understood this idea that maybe there was more to it than just choice. But I do find it interesting that maybe in myself I don't find addiction to beer or alcohol really, but I do have it to Coca-Cola. Because, come on, I know there's an amen out there somewhere out there, right? There's an amen. Coca-Cola is the sweetest ambrosia on earth, and I don't know who drinks Pepsi. What's wrong with y'all? Drink Coke, right? But uh, love my, love me some Coke, and it's one of the hardest things to put down. And in fact, every year uh, I try at some point to give up Coke, and you know I buy like the little bottles instead of the big, bo- like big cans. I just drink twice as many, twice as fast, because that's just how it goes, right, even though I have best intentions. But it is interesting that our world's coming back to this idea, right, that whether or not they would call it sin, that but people are born, get this, people, this is believed nowadays, with the natural affinity to things that would harm themselves or others, and even harm those that are their close loved ones. Now again, they're not using the word sin, but most people would agree with that at this point, that we're just born... We all have different things, we all have different ideas, but there's some affinity in us for things that harm ourselves, and we know it does, and even when we know it does, we can't help but purchase that item over the counter that's going to maybe make us feel good, but we know is doing detrimental stuff to our health, such as drinking three Cokes a day and you're trying to kick back to one, and you can't do it, but there's many other things, of course, than Coca-Cola out there. The Bible says these things about it. It says, The wages of sin are death, and that each of us are not only born into sin, but we willingly and participate in it despite our best efforts not, not to. Now, of course, if that's true, well, then what, right? I mean, if that's true, if, if we're all stuck in this affinity and we can't get out of it and we're just kind of all going through life just constantly beating our heads against a wall and all these different things, what's the answer? Oh, there are 10,000 charms. One of the sweetest, sweetest things that Jesus brings to our life is not just the peace that he can offer our very souls and the rest. It's the very fact that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Furthermore, he wants to, desires to. Our scripture reading this morning, as we read, came from Matthew chapter 9. A very simple story, but so profound in so many ways, where Jesus is battling again, once again, with the, the Pharisees and everybody at the time. And there's this paralytic, he comes across, and he tells them simply, pick up your mat and walk. And everybody flips out, because it's the Sabbath. How dare you, Jesus, heal on the Sabbath? If That's doing work. How dare you, bad Jesus, bad Jesus, right? And so they get on him and all these different things. And of course, what does Jesus say? He looks at them, he goes, what's wrong with you all? <laughs> to paraphrase it in today's world, like, quick. What are you talking about? Like, he says, hey, you know what? If you were out in the field and you had a sheep and it fell down in a pit, you would pick it up on the Sabbath? Of course, doing healing is good on the Sabbath. How dare you think otherwise? But then furthermore, he goes on to say this. But in case you're wondering, right? In case you're wondering if I have the authority to do this on the Sabbath, guess what? Let me show you how. He says, what's easier to say to this person? Is it easier to say to this person, your sins are forgiven? Or is it easier to say, pick up the mat and walk and of course the answer is who's going to go up to a paralytic man and say pick up your mat and walk because when he doesn't get up and walk you're proved to be a charlatan right you're not who you say you are and so Jesus says watch this guys and so of course he says to the paralytic get up take your mat and go home right before their eyes the man gets up went home when the crowd saw this they were filled with awe they praised God who had given such authority to men. You see, Jesus in that story is teaching us something. Not only were his, his healings amazing, and that he could do amazing things and really cure all those ailments that we all deal with, but he looked at us and wanted us to know, I have authority to forgive sins. Don't miss that. He wanted to know that he has authority to forgive sins. One of the little kind of coolest things to know about scripture is that it's interesting because this idea of creeds of the church we often think of the apostles creed the Nicene creed or something like that but you may not know it but in the bible there's actually a really early one of the earliest probably creeds of the whole entire church and it's actually in scripture it's in first corinthians chapter 15 and paul's not going to say hey this is a creed but basically what early christians would do is say hey well what do what do we believe as early christians and so they would have certain things they would repeat in their worship or in their, in their teachings and things like that. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, now remember, this is written probably 20, 30 years after Jesus Christ died and rose again. Yeah. So this isn't very long after at all when Jesus had left this earth. And he says this, Paul's writing to the Corinthians, he says, for what I received, I pass on to you as first importance. In other words, this is not something I'm making up, This is the message I got, and furthermore, it's the message everybody's getting, and it's the message I now pass on to you. If you don't believe me, go ask them, right? (laughs) Like This is the message, and it's the first priority, the first importance, and I'll read it to you, and then we'll come back and delve into it a little bit. It says this, the first importance was this, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised, and on the third day, according to the scriptures, and he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared more to the 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and at last he appeared to me also as one who is abnormally born. In other words, he wanted them to know, hey, the message is this. message of the church is this. And first and foremost, the first very thing that Paul in the early creed wanted us to remember is that Christ died for our sins. Furthermore, he did it according to the scriptures. In other words, it wasn't just something that happened haphazardly. It was something of God's design and God's plan to make sure that no sinner could be lost, that could be saved, that Jesus Christ could come and find each and every sinner that was willing to turn toward him and lean on him to bring healing to their very souls. I've been moved lately because I've been reading about early Methodism, and I say reading, this was actually a little bit ago that I was reading about it, but reading on uh, the idea of early Methodists. And you may not know this, but John Wesley and the early Methodists did some kind of cool things, uh, some unique things, some very uncomfortable things. Some of it, things like they would go field preaching, so they'd actually go out and and just preach and stuff like that, and and wherever the masses were, they would do uncomfortable things like that. They would do a whole bunch of stuff uh, with people that no one else wanted to touch or go near, and they would go do ministry with them and help them out, and start schools and funding and do all sorts of things for people that were supposed to be untouchables or unlikables and all these different things but maybe the most uncomfortable thing they did was they started something called bands and you wonder what a band is and so here's how early Methodism kind of worked is it was in the Church of England it wasn't a new denomination or anything and it was a renewal movement and so as it started it was just some people at college and university if you will getting together and saying hey let's start like a holiness club Let's, let's actually, like, search after God. Let's not play around. Let's actually, like, do this thing. And so they'd get together. They'd have all these meetings. And, of course, revival kind of broke out from there. kept spreading. And people kept encountering Christianity. And it's basically some of its truest form of people earnestly seeking God, trying to get back to Scripture, and trying to once again live the life that God had called them. Well, as you fast forward through time, eventually what would happen is people would get together in what was called classes, and it was kind of like a weekly thing people just would come across, it was almost like a little mini worship in the middle of a week, almost like a little mini worship uh, service, and people would come and they'd sing songs, they'd have some scripture read or read other things and do different things. But then people in that group even said, you know what, if I really reflect on my life, there's still these dark things that God's working on, and I need to address it. And so what they did was they found a few people, normally like, you know, four or five people that were kind of in that same boat of saying, hey, you know what, I'm tired of Wrestling with sin. I want to know deep down in the very depths of my soul that I'm forgiven. I want to be able to find the grace that seems available in Scripture for me to get out of sin and live a life differently. And so they started these bands. And so, what these were, these were normally uh, separated, you know, boy or girl kind of thing. And then they were separated, uh, you know, basically by preference as far as who just would willingly join it. And they would get together on a weekly basis. You guys are familiar with this in our church because if any of you have been on Emmaus, you have something called. Share group, right? Guess where the idea of share group came from. Well, it wasn't made up. This is hearkening back to the days of the band meetings, if you will, of Methodism, uh, and even before that as well. And so what they would do is they'd get together and they would literally just lay out before each other, as sincere as they could, be vulnerable with each other, and they would say, hey, I'm struggling with this and this. And they would even lay out their sins before one another. Are there secret parts of their hearts before one another and ironically, you'd think that would be a miserable experience, right? But when you read the writings of those who were part of it, it's amazing because they never ended with the evil. They always clung to Jesus Christ and the availability of the forgiveness of sins. And so in every meeting, there were some questions they would ask and they'd have to answer honestly. And then at the end of it, they would basically repeat the very call to worship that we had here this morning. just want to remind you of it real quickly. The call to worship, what well, came from John chapter, or First John that is, chapter 1, verse 8 through 10. Where Jesus, or no, Jesus is, well, John is writing uh, on behalf of Jesus saying, this is what Jesus does in our life. He says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. They'd end the meeting reading those words together. Then they look at each other and they say, your sins are forgiven. If you ever have a chance, go back and read some of the writings, right? Because it's one thing to come around and to once again, you know, hear the story that your sins are forgiven. It's another thing to sort of encounter Jesus Christ and know in the depths of your soul that is. But it's even another thing to stand with brothers or sisters in a small group where you know the dirty secrets about each other and yet you choose to love each other. Just as Christ loves us. And those words, in the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven from someone who knows the worst about you. Speaking those words upon you was a profound experience. And in fact, early Methodists write pages and pages upon it. upon it was really the heartbeat of the Methodism movement. So many people claim it was John Wesley's preaching and They'd say, well, it was good, but maybe not. And then some people would say it was you know, this strategy or this strategy, but so many people give credit to that very idea that they found forgiveness of sins, that their sins were washed clean, and the joy that they came from that, even though it was a hard experience, even though it took great courage and vulnerability to do so, they found such forgiveness that it was contagious and spread to others Oh, a 10,000 charms. Poor sinners can be forgiven. It's the gospel message. Poor sinners can be forgiven. Every sinner that comes and leans on Jesus Christ can be forgiven. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.